On April 1st, 1972, Major League Baseball players went on strike for the first time in MLB history, lasting for 13 days and effectively canceling opening day for the sport that was then considered to be America's pastime. About a month and a half later, this week's guests joined an organization looking to accomplish the same thing as these players, and it all revolves around the NFL PA. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great Scott. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is May 15th in 1972 and we're in Washington, D.C. Why are we here? Well, we're here to greet this week's guest as he starts his new journey with the NFL Players Association. His name is Richard Berthelsen. And he stops by to give us a first-hand, primary source account to the fight for player rights for 40 years. That's four decades. That's a long time. And he was armed with a law degree and a go-get-em attitude back in 1972. Richard would work closely with the likes of John Mackey, Gene Epshaw, and many others throughout the NFLPA. He is considered on the NFLPA's website to be one of 60 heroes of the association. The title on the site says, he is the NFLPA's trusted legal counsel. Well, that is, he was, because he's retired now. And I'll go ahead and leave links to this page and more in the show notes for you, which, by the way, you can get to the show notes for your podcast player of choice or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com. It's the best place to go to get more information about topics and guests that I bring on the show. Also, if you like to go get more involved and help out the show, you can support the show in various ways. You can review the show, you subscribe for free, you can offer a donation, or you can even get a little bit of merchandise about the Football History Dude. Again, that's over at the website, thefootballhistorydude.com. But for now, let's get into the interview with the NFLPA's trusted legal counsel, Mr. Richard Bertelson. Hey Richard, welcome to the Football History Dude podcast. Well, thank you. Glad to be with you. So coming out of gradu- graduating out of law school and what what was 1969 or something like that, and going into the NFL PA, like not too long after, how did you fall into that type of a position coming out of law school? Well, it had more to do with my law school, uh, frankly, than anything. Uh, I had a classmate by the name of Ed Garvey. Um, uh, we were uh, we entered law school at the same time. He was from Burlington, Wisconsin. I was from Racine, Wisconsin. And uh, Ed went to a labor law firm in Minneapolis after we graduated in 69. That firm ended up representing the NFL Players Association a couple years later. At the same time, another classmate in law school was Pat Richter, an All-American tight end for the Wisconsin Badgers. Uh, who also went to law school in the offseason when he was playing in the NFL, playing for the Redskins. Pat was on the executive committee. So they, they hired Ed as their full-time executive director in 1971. And then they looked to hiring a, a full-time in-house lawyer. Uh, so both Pat and uh, Ed recommended me. So I took my job with the Players Association starting May 15th, 
1972, three years after I graduated from law school. So it was more of a by connections type. That was that something that you ever thought you would get into, as far as the sports law. Not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, I had not even left the state of Wisconsin except to play uh, baseball games when I was uh, a youngster, a teenager, uh, like twenty miles into Illinois and the northern border. I had never even been on an airplane uh, until my. After my second year in law school, when I did a couple of interviews in New York, but um, I decided to stay in Wisconsin rather than to go uh, to New York. Uh, but little did I know that I would go to Washington instead uh, three years later. Right. Yeah, that's a little bit of a change for you. Like you said, you've been there for so long. And speaking of change, the NFL itself was going through a lot of change when you first started uh, with the merger. What was it like? running with the Players Association during those mergers and having two different associations coming together at the same time? The, uh, the NFL and the AFL uh, merged officially in 1966, um, it, but they didn't have interleague play until uh, 1970. They had the Super Bowl, but uh, the leagues remained apart, and so did the Players Associations until 1970. But then they started interleague play in 1970. That's when the Colts jumped to the AFC and, and the Browns did the same. And uh, it just wasn't practical for the players' associations to remain separate. So that was the big thing in 1970. It was really like starting a new organization. And so the, the issues, uh, and that's two years before I joined the staff, the issues then were basically just getting the new organization recognized. And so when I... When I arrived in D.C. two years later, they signed a four-year agreement. Uh, it was really the first time the players were really preparing for real collective bargaining about all the issues that unions and, and companies normally talk about. Uh, up to that time, it was just a matter of, of putting the two organizations together and being recognized by the NFL. So it was, it was a real empty slate uh, when I started. And uh, when the player reps started talking about what their proposals, what their demands would be in 1974, when the CBA was up, it was like every guy was just writing out his Christmas list of, of all the things that he wants to happen. And so my job, when I started, I still have the letter that Ed Garvey sent me. Uh, that was kind of my job description at the time. And uh, I kind of laugh now because I look at that letter and, paragraphs in that letter uh, indicating, well, you'll have this job and you'll have that job, are now entire departments <laughs> right? at the NFLPA. Uh, for example, one of my jobs was uh, in the group licensing program to, uh, uh, when we would get outside licensees, we would have to get the permission of the players that licensee wanted to use. And so through the player reps, we would obtain authorizations. And so that was that was just a minor part of my job. Now we have a licensing operation at the NFLPA in Washington. I think it has over 30 employees uh, and, and literally hundreds of millions over the years in, in, in revenue. But that was just a small part of my job description when I started in 1972. Right. Yeah, you had to wear many hats as many and many people in organizations that are starting up and I guess you can call them a startup type of organization. Uh, what did you focus on as far as 
sure you had all these hats, but what was your main priorities when it was part of the the collective bargaining and getting in 74? Like, did you focus on certain um, responsibilities there or was it more of a, okay, generality collecting information? Yeah, about 65% of my job was being a lawyer. And uh, that included representing individual players in disputes with their clubs called grievances. Uh, we had two types of grievances. There was an injury grievance where a guy is hurt and still not recovered from an injury, and then the club cuts him, saying he's okay. And the player says, no, I wasn't recovered yet, and so he makes a claim for his salary. So I had about 15 to 20 of those cases pending when I took my job. We had non-injury grievances, which would be like a dispute over a bonus clause, for example. And for those kinds of cases, uh, Pete Rosell, the commissioner, was the arbitrator. So the grievance caseload was all mine when I took the job, and uh, that took a lot of my time. But uh, like I say, I also did the licensing work. Uh, we would represent players who were disciplined by the league and the preparation for collective bargaining. Uh, one other thing that I was uh, assigned was to uh, prepare for and arrange everything for the first ever player convention of the NFLPA with the two combined organizations which occurred in, in Las Vegas in early 1974. So I had a pretty full plate, and um, there were just two of us, Ed Garvey, the executive director, and myself. My title was staff counsel. Uh, and we had two, uh, we called them secretaries then, uh, assistants uh, helping us. So it was a four-person staff. Uh, now I think it's probably about 140 persons. <laughs> quite, quite a few changes. Since. Right, yeah, a little bit of growth there. And we've, Ed Garvey is not a new name to this podcast. We've talked about him in uh, different lights. Of course, when we had Players Association episodes, uh, what was what was his uh, role or as far as growing and starting the NFL Players Association? The, the role that he assumed uh, was to be the, the main leader in addition to John Mackey, who is the president. And... Uh, Ed is extremely intelligent, very witty individual, uh, a bit of a smart ass, <laughs> which we always kind of enjoyed. Uh, but I don't know if, if Ed prioritized it this way, but what I could say, uh, working for him for over 10 years, that more than anything else, he was an educator. Uh, every team meeting, uh, he would be educating the players about how restrictive the NFL system was saying, for example, you know, I'm a, I'm a young lawyer. I went to law school for three years, but when I graduated, I wasn't told where I would be working. There wasn't a draft of lawyers nationwide that assigned me to a place. I had no input in terms of going to. And uh, he said, if I quit my job tomorrow, I'd be able to take any job I wanted somewhere else. Whereas you, uh, have something called the Roselle rule that uh, deterred players from being able to change clubs at the end of their contract. So uh, he would educate them about how everybody, everybody else in America has the right to an open market for their services, but yet they were told where they were going to work. And when their first contract was over, they couldn't go anywhere uh, unless in effect, the two clubs would work out a trade. So uh, the standard player contract at the time was very, very one-sided. In fact, Ed used to compare it to uh, something that would put an encyclopedia salesman to shame. It was so one-sided. <laughs> uh, so, 
and Ed, Ed was not shy about talking to the media, giving speeches, uh, appearing before Congress, uh, whenever and whatever he could do to spread the word about how backward the NFL and professional sports in general were in terms of treatment of employees uh, than other industries in the country. Uh, he did a great job at it, and uh, the players, for the most part, listened. Uh, some of the superstars, uh, I think, were maybe a little afraid of him because uh, they were always well-paid, and if you had a system where other people were better paid, maybe they saw that as losing some of their own. Uh, but for the most part, uh, it had strong support, uh, but he couldn't have had that without John Mackey, who was uh, equally a, good, a leader. John led in different ways, but the two of them were a really good combination, uh, in, at least in terms of that phase of the history uh, where the players were in their infancy as far as being a union is concerned. Yeah, and you mentioned um, the various roles and that kind of thing as far as that goes. I have only been able to see third hand after the fact. I mean, I grew up in a world where as, as long as I can remember, it was after the 1992-93 free agency period. Um, what was it like going through the 70s to the 80s leading up to that 90s as far as I always hear of the strikes and the scab seasons? And what were your roles involved in that? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I didn't mention that when I took the job in 1972, <laughs> I, took, I, I took a three-year leave of absence from my law firm thinking, well, I'll go to Washington for a while, help the players uh, gain free agency, and then perhaps return. Little did I know that it would take uh, over 20 years to, to get to that level. Uh, but we had a strike in 74. Uh, we, we ended that strike uh, without a new agreement uh, because they got a lot of rookies, uh, got all the rookies to cross the picket line and uh, veterans as well. We had a lawsuit, the Mackey suit, that we won in court. By the time we won it, uh, we were almost out of resources, so we settled on a new agreement. It was new, but the system wasn't much better. 1982, there was another strike this time to get a guaranteed percentage of the revenues put into a fund and have the players paid through a wage scale. We came out of that uh, fairly well with a guarantee that the owners would spend at least 50% of the revenues on players, but no wage scale. Uh, and then in 1987, after Gene Upshaw took over, that was uh, the battle for free agency again. Again, we had a strike in 87. The networks put on the games anyhow with, with the scab players that uh, the NFL recruited. Um, we called them scabs. They called them replacements. <laughs> right, yeah. Even a movie done about it. Uh, and we went through the courts this time again when the strike didn't succeed. And finally, we won the Freeman McNeil case in 1992, and we were determined not to make the same mistake we had made back in 1977. So we wouldn't settle on a new system without a guaranteed percentage of the revenues and free agency for virtually all players. So 93 was kind of the, uh, the watershed moment, as it were, in terms of the players finally turning a corner and having what they deserve. And after 93... Paul Taglibu, the commissioner, Gene Upshaw, executive director, had a great relationship. We extended the agreement three or four times. Uh, and then finally, it expired in, in, in March of 2011. Uh, 
by then, Gina died in 2008, and I, I was executive director uh, for a while, and then I oversaw the process for uh, picking a, a successor to Gene. That was Dee Smith, uh, and uh, Dee asked me to stay on through the next negotiation, which was the lockout in 2011. Now, maybe that's something you will re- remember at your <laughs> young age. Right. But uh, it was the first lockout that I'd ever experienced. Uh, and it was my last go around with it. And then I retired a year later. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Gene Upshaw. You took over there as an interim director for a while and helped lead the charge to find the successor. Uh, what, what were you and your organization looking for in the next leader of the Players Association? Well, uh, I don't know that I could answer that question for a majority of, of people, frankly. Uh, at the time, we had a couple of players, two or three players on our executive committee who were retiring. And, and one of them wanted the job uh, that, that Gene vacated with his death. Um, so we had a group of people who saw that as the direction to go. Uh, there was another past president of the NFLPA who always thought uh, would be qualified for the job. So he had his supporters. And um, so what I thought was most important is that the procedure be as open and, and as objective as possible uh, so that we wouldn't have a lot of infighting among the players who had been leaders, frankly. It wasn't an easy situation uh, to manage, but the best way to do it, and, and I have to say Kevin Mawai, just recently, just this last summer, uh, inducted in the NFL Hall of Fame, or Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, he became president just before Gene died. And, and Kevin had the same uh, focus that I did on making the, the process as open uh, as it could possibly be. So uh, we appointed a a committee, a search committee among uh, the executive committee, uh, but we also hired an outside firm uh, to do all the, the legwork for us, a firm in Chicago, and it happened to have uh, with it a former NHL player uh, who uh, uh, kind of knew the, the mentality of the professional athlete, and so he helped quite a bit. So. There was a lot of media attention to the process. Uh, I did all the team meetings that year and assured the players that it was going to be open and transparent. And that's the way it ended up being. And D. Smith uh, was chosen not necessarily because the players said, well, what we want is a lawyer who's practiced law in D.C. for X number of years. Uh, out of five final candidates, uh, D. impressed the, the player reps the most, and so uh, he was voted in. Uh, some might say, looking back at the situation, the fact that he had not been involved at all previously in the NFLPA uh, could be a good explanation for having a better chance for the job because there were other candidates who had, and that tended to, I think divide is too strong of a word, but it tended to make players who were you know, supportive of one guy against players who were supportive of another guy. And I'm sure there are player reps in their ultimate vote who thought, look, uh, it'll be better to have someone new who's not been involved in any of this. So this, you know, these differences we have among each other as to who should lead 
maybe that's the best way to resolve them. And uh, uh, so D got elected in 2009, which was two years away from the lockout we had in 2011. Yeah, and you mentioned great leader. You had a good relationship with Gene Upshaw, from what I understand, right? Oh, yes. In fact, uh, my relationship with Gene went way back to 1974. One of my jobs then was to set up the, the initial picket lines for the camps that are opening the earliest. And uh, the Chargers that you were, were opening on July 1st, the Cowboys, I think four or five days later, uh, up in Thousand Oaks, California. And so I had to set up those two picket lines. And Gene was uh, with me in both efforts, and, uh, and particularly for the Dallas Cowboys picket line. And uh, so we, we spent a lot of time together <laughs> during that strike. And then he became the player rep uh, for the Raiders, eventually elected the executive committee. This is all while he was still playing. And then ultimately he was elected president in 1980, I believe. So all through those years when he was playing, I certainly knew him well, both because of our original experience with the strike, but also because he was a leader and we had you know, almost weekly interaction with the leaders uh, as we went along. Uh, but then when he retired in 1983, uh, Ed Garvey uh, convinced him to take his job. They got the approval of the executive committee. I was leaving at the time because uh, I thought maybe there were some other things I could do, but both Gene and Ed asked me to stay on, and I, I agreed to. And I think it's probably the best decision I ever made because twenty-five for twenty-five years after that, Gene and I worked, worked together very closely. Had a, a fantastic relationship. You probably couldn't have two people with more differing personalities. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why it worked. Um, but uh, we became. As, as close of friends as we were associates working at the NFLPA. Um, I, I, he is by far the, the greatest leader I have ever had the pleasure to, to know and to, and to deal with. I still think about him every day. I would say you mentioned 25 more years after that point in time, and you were there for, what, 40 years to the date was your retirement? To the day, yeah. When it came to... Uh, uh, the terms of my retirement after the lockout was settled in 2011. Uh, you know, after 40 years, there's a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> well, you know, will, you, will you remain on doing anything, et cetera? Uh, so I, in negotiating a, a uh, what was then a three-year consulting agreement, it was kind of my idea selfishly to make the official retirement date the same as the date I started. So I started in 72, uh, May 15th. It was a Monday. And uh, uh, that was my actual retirement date 40 years later uh, in 2012. I'm not sure it was a Monday, but it's <laughs> still, still, still the same day. Right. Yeah. And of course, you've seen the NFL go from, of course, a very good competing league to the point where now it's America's favorite sport dominant. Uh, what, what made you stay on for 40 years, you think? Well, I enjoyed the work. Uh, there wasn't a day that I dreaded going to the office. Um, and uh, having worked as a practicing attorney for, for three years, I knew the difficulty of attracting clients, keeping clients, and having to keep track of your time and billing for it. Uh, it was a job that I, I could apply my legal skills and not have to worry about collecting <laughs> fees from a client. 
Uh, and I think more than anything else, we really hadn't achieved our original objectives yet. And I like Gene so much that I thought, what the heck? I mean, I'll try it for a year or two, see what happens. And the longer it went on, the more I enjoyed it. And uh, I, I reached a point where I, I just couldn't see myself doing anything else. There was a couple times where, uh, in fact, they used to say that the only better job I could have would be to be the head of a, a players association. And uh, on, on three separate occasions with, with Gene's approval and knowledge, I, I did apply after Alan Eagleson uh, was bounced from the NHLPA. Uh, I was in for that job, came down to two of us. Uh, Bob Goodenow got the job. Uh, then in basketball, after, uh, after Charlie Grantham uh, stepped down, I was one of the final people. Uh, and the last one was in hockey, where it came down to me and someone else. And that person was deemed to have more of a passion for hockey than I did. <laughs> so he got, he got the job, but they fired him a year later. By that time, Gene had just died, and uh, I had all I could handle by taking his job over. Uh, that was in 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008. Uh, so I ended up keeping the same job for 40 years, uh, although the job itself changed so much over the years. It was really like having 10 different jobs. <laughs> right, yeah, and you mentioned that that other gentleman had more passion for hockey. Uh, did you grow up as a football fan or did you just kind of fall into it as this job came along? Well, growing up in Wisconsin, um, the only pro sports team we had in my younger years was the Milwaukee Braves and then the Green Bay Packers before them. Um, the Bucks came to town, I think maybe when I was in law school, I'm not sure, but um, so I was always a Milwaukee Braves fan and always a Green Bay Packer fan. And since both teams were pretty successful when I was a young person, you know, my, my dedication loyalty to them grew right along with that. So I was very much a Green Bay Packer fan uh, in 72 when I moved to Washington. Uh, but I had never been to a pro football game uh, as of that point. Green Bay is about, I don't know, 100, 110 miles away from, maybe more, from Racine, where I grew up. So I'd never been to an NFL game. My first ever one was uh, in Washington to see the Redskins play after I took the job. Yeah, I mean, being, like you said, you grew up during the Lombardi era. <laughs> That's not a bad way to go. I'm a Detroit Lions fan if you haven't seen my hat or my sweater. So um, that's. Uh, let's just say I haven't had a whole lot of chance for success other than Barry Sanders in my lifetime. But uh, oh, yeah. not, not too many victories there. And it's been a long time that you've been in the NFLPA, you know, when you were in there. Uh, what do you feel like was the... I don't know, maybe biggest change or some of the bigger changes as far as how the association interacted with the NFL from the beginning to what, where we are now? I think that two people, Gene Upshaw and Paul Tagliabu, made the biggest difference. Uh, Gene, when he took the job in 83, uh, although he had been portrayed as a real militant, uh, he was a reasonable guy. Uh, and he was much more inclined to you know, treat our adversaries with more respect, try to keep the fights out of the media uh, and try to establish 
if not a personal relationship, certainly a, a productive professional relationship with them. At about the same time, Paul Tagliabue uh, took the job. So I think more than any issue, lawsuit, uh, any particular year, whatever was happening, those two men together made the biggest difference. Uh, they made, along with the help of the rest of us, a deal in 93, which gave free agency to the players for the first time. Uh, and also guaranteed percentage of the revenues. There was also a salary cap. Uh, but it made us partners, in effect. It was not an easy word to use at first because we'd been fighting for so long. But Gene and Paul established that partnership. And for the next 17 years, which at that point was just unheard of in sports, there was so-called labor peace in the NFL. Sure, we had our battles, but that system ended up being working very well. Uh, we had free agency that that really uh, helped competitive balance in the league. Uh, it disproved all of the myths that the owners had perpetrated about, well, if you have free agency, all the best players you can go to the New York or Los Angeles and the league will be imbalanced. All of those things were disproven. Uh, new stadiums were built so that that point in 93, which I called the watershed, uh, it truly was that because after 93, the players had a fair share of the revenues and they had free agency. The owners had enough stability to build new stadiums, uh, get new TV contracts, really take advantage of the technology going into cable TV. And so both players and owners really flourished. And I, I don't use that word uh, you know, to exaggerate. Uh, after 93 and, and going to uh, the time when uh, Gene died, unfortunately, in 2008, and when Paul Tagliabue stepped aside in, in, uh, in 2007. Um, uh, after that, that's when the fighting started again. Speaking of that, there's this time that, so we all have, especially with you, 40 years in that career, everybody that's been in their career for a long time, they get to the point where they feel f- fairly comfortable with a particular outcome before they go into that situation. But then, bam, they get hit in the face and it just, you know, the whole Mike Tyson thing, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and it just went totally different. Do you recall a time when that happened and then how you guys overcame that? Number one on that list for me uh, would be when we we lost the Marvin Powell case. I don't mean to get into a lot of legal talk here, but after the, uh, after the, uh, the, 82 agreement was over in 87. We wanted to uh, make free agency our highest priority. The strike didn't work, so we had to file suit. And what we filed suit against was the owner's plan to continue the restrictions on free agency. And our position was legally that since the agreement was over, they couldn't continue a system anymore that we hadn't agreed to. Uh, the first court agreed with us, basically, and that was in January of, of 1988. But the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in 1989, I think it was November 1st, that uh, the owners would still be able to use the system that we couldn't sue them under the antitrust laws so long as we remained a union. Uh, saying that the labor laws control, so unionized employees can't sue their employers under the antitrust laws, which was obviously the biggest threat that we posed to the owners. 
And so uh, we had to decide where were we going to go from there. We had talked about it previously, uh, and the decision was relatively easy. It was to, in effect, blow ourselves up as a union. Because if we wouldn't be a union anymore, then the owners wouldn't have the exemption from the antitrust laws. And uh, it was it was a hard pill to swallow. But uh, the player reps voted to uh, to dissolve as a union. We reconstituted ourselves as a professional association, uh, like I said, like the American Bar Association or the American Medical Association. We disengaged from grievances and representation on the retirement board. And in effect, we became an organization dedicated to the individual contracting rights of our members. We filed a new lawsuit in the name of Freeman McNeil uh, in 1989. Now, that's the one we won in 92. That's the one that led to the settlement. But uh, that was probably our darkest hour uh, because the, what we had going for us in, in court was suddenly taken away from us. And we, we almost had to shoot ourselves in the head <laughs> in order to, to, to survive. It's called, it's been referred to as decertification. Uh, that's the commonly used word to describe it. I mean, I'll accept it, although technically it's not accurate uh, under the law. Decertification of a union is usually when the employees vote to say, we don't want the union anymore. Uh, this was a case where everyone, the staff, the, the player leaders, the members were saying, it's going to benefit the owners more than us for us to be a union. So we're just going to dissolve uh, and ended up being the best thing we ever did. Yeah. And speaking of it being the best thing you've ever done, and you've, again, 40 years of a career, if you could take yourself back to May 15th, 1972, and you could give your younger self one piece of advice with all the experience you've had over these years, what would it be? Uh, well, I guess if there were two words, I would say be patient. Uh, but, but also that uh, what I learned the most in my position is that you're going to make mistakes. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, and uh, you have to make a lot of judgments. But in the long run, you're really evaluated and your success is determined by more often being right than being wrong. And that's a lesson I really had to learn because we had this mentality of total victory. Uh, and uh, you, you can't think of things that way. I mean, there's a lot of different ways of putting it. Uh, you know, a piece of the pie is better than none. You can always make it bigger in the future and all of that. But if there's one thing that I learned being thrust in the position of, you know, if not being a leader, certainly being responsible for making good judgments, is that you're not going to bat a thousand, <laughs> but you, you at least want to bat well enough that people want you to stay in your job. And uh, fortunately, I was, I was able to do that for 40 years. Right. Yeah. It worked out in the long run and I could imagine it being very challenging, stressful, difficult, use whatever adjective you want to during those times. But one thing I will say is I'm going to give you the keys to my DeLorean and you can go back in time, any point in NFL history, preferably before you were in the union. So maybe even growing up and before you actually were watching your Packers, what moment would you go to so you could be a fly on the wall? You can't change the outcome though. Before 1972? For sure. Yeah. Let's go back to the time, even maybe a time that you were not able to relive or you were not able to live or uh, experience live yourself. 
Well, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I wish I had more time uh, to to think about it. But um, fly in the wall. I I would have loved to have been in the uh, discussions about the merger of the uh, of the old American Football League uh, and the NFL because that, in retrospect, had to be one of the hardest negotiations. <laughs> that anyone has ever had when you consider the owners and they have just as big an ego as anybody, perhaps in some cases, even more, the, the ability to uh, make all those, put all those egos uh, really uh, in the same place and see how you would put all this together, uh, how you would deal with Congress and how you would deal with, the fact that the old league, or the AFL, had fewer teams than the NFL, so you had to get some teams uh, to move. Um, that would have been fascinating for me to have been privy to to that discussion. Um, also, uh, going forward in my own career, I would have loved to have been in the the owners' caucus room <laughs> on many occasions, uh, <laughs> right? During uh, that that compromises had to be made but maybe it's just as well I, I, I never had that experience i might hear some things about myself that i never would have wanted to hear sure sure but you know as soon as this is over i'm going to be thinking about what would have been a better answer to this but that, that that's kind of what comes to mind all right well um speaking of going back in time and you yourself uh i saw that you're either writing a book about the history or you already wrote a book is that book out yet well, there's two books. The, the The history of the NFLPA is the first one. And um, it, it, we meant that to be the history and that I would write it. And I was the best person to do it because of you know, my longevity with the organization. Early on, though, I decided I couldn't write it in the first person because then it wouldn't really be history. And histories should have footnotes and they should have cited source materials and all of that. And it was a, it was a daunting chat, a task, but I mean, I, I could say things in the history that I knew were true, but I still had to verify that they were true. And all the while, I was thinking, you know, it would really be great to write something in the first person where I actually could put in my own perspective and opinions. And so when I finished the, the, the history, which is two volumes and uh, lots and lots of chapters, uh, I think 65 in number, um, I just sat one, down one day and just started writing down some thoughts. And before I knew it, I had six or seven chapters, ended up with 12 or 13. And they're all separate chapters. Uh, they might call them an essay, each of them on different subjects, uh, but my own perspective. Didn't have to use footnotes this time. Didn't have to go on the internet to check things. It was just me remembering and me reflecting. Uh, and it, it took didn't take long at all. Uh, so I've now finished that. I've, I've sent it out to a few folks, see if it's something that anybody would want to publish. Um, I, I'm not inclined to do a, to be a self-publisher, uh, but having written both of those, the second one was a lot of fun. I've shared it with a lot of friends, uh, and I'm very glad I did it, even if I never make a penny on it. But this is a difficult time uh, in the publishing uh, industry. Um, the, the publishers are really not interested in something unless you know it reveals something that people hadn't known before and is embarrassing to somebody or what have you or uh, well, you've seen books out there 
Uh, now is not the time to sell something with such limited appeal. The typical reader of the book would be someone who's interested in working in the sports business or, or a law student, or maybe it would be helpful in a, a sports law class. But I don't know that it would have a wide enough audience that uh, it would be much of a moneymaker. But I, I still have hopes. Well, you know, it still is that that content that they can't get anywhere else because you said this one is firsthand perspective. It's not someone else that can gather third-party information from the internet. So, I mean, it's something I would be interested in as a fan. So, I hope that it gets out there and I hope that when it does, we're able to find it in Amazon and all the other bookstores that there is. But uh, until then... Maybe that'll happen. <laughs> and uh, but also, what nowadays you said your uh, board of NFL Players Inc. was it? Uh, yeah, the uh, the Players Inc. is a is the licensing uh, subsidiary of the NFL Players Association. Uh, when you're a a union, uh, you are a nonprofit organization, so you really can't go into business. And compete with other businesses. So in 1994, we created a subsidiary, which is a for-profit uh, subsidiary of uh, the NFLPA. Uh, so I currently serve on the board of Players Inc. I think the revenues now from Players Inc. are, are north of 160, 170 million a year. Um, so that, that that's fun to do. Uh, I'm still doing some consulting. I um, I called upon to come to Washington occasionally. They still have an office there for me. Uh, uh, one of the most interesting things I do now, though, and I never thought I'd be able to do this, is that I do cases as an arbitrator. Uh, I did hundreds of cases as an advocate for players in the association in arbitration. I never thought I'd be accepted as a neutral, being the person who decides the issues. Uh, but I've gotten uh, a small kind of business going as an arbitrator. And uh, I really enjoy that, uh, to be in a different seat in that hearing room than I, than I was before. Um, so I really enjoy doing that. Um, one of the things that I, I, I discovered, and I tell my friends who are approaching retirement, is that uh, you can't let retirement be like you're jumping off a cliff. <laughs> the, the best way to retire is to continue doing some of the things you did before, but only those things that don't bring you stress. And, uh, you know, not being in the spotlight, not having to worry about, you know, spending the player's money and losing a case, but still being involved in the cases as a witness or still deciding cases as an arbitrator. Uh, I enjoyed that a lot as a, as an advocate, uh, the fact that I can still be involved as a witness or as an arbitrator and not have to lose sleep the night before the hearing <laughs> like I used to because I had so much at stake. So I, I, I stay pretty busy. And uh, I think I'm much the better for it. And besides, I thought I'd be a better golfer after I could play more. <laughs> it's not true. You don't become a better golfer, even if you play every day, at least in my case. <laughs> well, you've given some good information, like through your wealth of experience, as far as the Players Association goes in your career. And then, of course, some uh, after the fact, you know, with this whole I get a chance to be on the other side type of thing. Is there any other words of wisdom or things that you would like to recommend to the listeners of this show? Uh, well, I, I think you need to, the thing I preach the most when you're looking at pro sports in particular, entertainment industry in general, is that 
there is no such thing as a salary that's too high. Uh, I, I still get in my own neighborhood here from guys I play golf with. Those guys wouldn't make way too much, much money in the NFL. Well, what's, what's way too much money? The way to think of the entertainment industry is that it's extremely labor intensive. And uh, I mean, let's say that you love to sing and you grow up, you know, singing at home to yourself. You're in the church choir. Maybe you're in the glee club and you enjoy that. And just like you would enjoy playing baseball or football. But the minute that somebody records you singing a song and then puts it out in the market marketplace and starts making hundreds of thousands, if not millions as a result, you, your parents start to think, well, wait a second. It's my talent that's on display here. It's generating X millions of dollars. I deserve a pretty good share of that. And so there's never been a salary of a player in the NFL that an owner hasn't agreed to. Uh, and uh, people should not think of what the money that players make as being too much because it's a function of how much money does the industry itself generate. And it's billions of dollars. When I was a kid, I couldn't even imagine the NFL being billions a year. Uh, but the players get about half of that. And as the owners get more and more money, their franchises are worth more. The players are the talent. Uh, and uh, they deserve to get at least their half. And if the revenues keep going up, though those player salaries are going to see, seem high. But nobody goes to a game to watch the owner on the team. <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, I, I get that all the time. Uh, the guys you represent, they make so much damn money, uh, they should shut up and do their work and not complain about anything. But it's really it's them and the coaches who generate that money. And, and uh, every time I get a chance I, uh, to talk to fans, I, I'm hoping that they will eventually understand that. Well, Richard, I appreciate you sharing that unique perspective that many people don't get to hear because they're so caught up in headlines and things like that. Um, uh, that's that's all I really wanted from you. I just want to say thank you for taking time out and uh, riding shotgun in my DeLorean with me. <laughs> all right. Well, anytime. Let's do it again. <laughs> Tell you what, you don't get that type of story too often, that little insider knowledge guy in the trenches fighting for the rights for the players for 40 years four decades think about that that's an entire career and he dedicated everything that he had to fighting for player rights and you heard at the very end there what he believes as far as salary and players and the like now i hope you did enjoy listening to getting this inside scoop the gridiron inside knowledge nuggets about how the nflpa has worked over the years and how it's evolved i mean think about that he mentioned at the very beginning there were paragraphs that now have entire departments about what he had to do. So, let's just say, as things do, they all grow. And Richard does still work with NFL Players, Inc., and most of us, when we purchase jerseys, and we like to look at our favorite players. Speaking of our favorite players, many of them we get from our favorite football moments of all time. And yes, I have another favorite football moment to share with you. This one, uh... Let's just say he probably wears a uh, number 14 in purple. Maybe not anymore because it's, well, you'll find out. 
Take it away, Rob. Hey, everyone. Rob Sullivan, content creator at rotoheat.com and the host of Sully's Two Cents Dynasty Fantasy Football Podcast, available nearly everywhere you find your favorite fantasy podcasts. When Arnie reached out to me to ask me to participate in this episode and to share my favorite football moment, I was honored. As a lifelong Vikings fan, the moment was easy for me to select. The day was January 14th, 2018, and my Minnesota Vikings were facing Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints. Now ask any true Vikings fan and they will tell you, come playoff time, we expect the worst. After all, it's in our DNA. This one, however, seemed to buck the trend, and the Vikings led 17 to nothing at the half and 17 to 3 through three quarters of play. You know, the Vikings are not kind to their fan base, especially in the postseason. This one, as it turns out, was far from over. After an interception of Case Keenum, Drew Brees hits Michael Thomas on a three-yard pass to make it 17-14. The Vikings, they had a field goal to up the lead to 20-14. A blocked punt and a 14-yard touchdown pass from Brees to Kamara later, and the score is now 21-20 for the Saints. The Vikings come back and add another field goal. Saints' Will Lutz responds, and the Vikings find themselves down by one, with 10 seconds left to play, with the ball on their own 39-yard line. The play the Vikings ran was called Buffalo Right 7 Heaven. The intent behind the play was to have a receiver catch the ball and then run out of bounds, stop the clock, in time to kick a field goal. Keenum's pass was high. Diggs had to leap into the air to make the catch. Attempting a diving tackle on Diggs was Saints safety Marcus Williams, and instead he missed that tackle and collided with cornerback Ken Crawley. Diggs makes the catch, stumbles, managed to regain his balance, and stay in bounds. I will never forget how loud I was yelling at 14 to get the hell out of bounds. Thank goodness he didn't listen to me. Instead, Diggs took it to the house untouched, and the Vikings walked off with a 29-24 victory. The game was the first in NFL playoff history to end in a touchdown as time expired, and it's easily my favorite football moment. I just wish that my favorite football moment would have come two games later. There you go. Minnesota Miracle. A play that will live on and is one of the most exciting in NFL playoff history for a long time, if not ever. And if you're interested in sharing your favorite football moment, or even state your case for someone you think should be in the Hall of Fame today, you can go and do so over at myfootballmoment.com. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.